0: May is Music Month on the Road to Now podcast. And to kick things off, we visit Dean McLeod at the Woody Guthrie Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma.
1: Woody's music and his artwork and the things that he wrote... Those were just his avenues of being a social justice advocate. We definitely, as part of our mission, want to make sure people understand who he was as a person and and what his ultimate goal was, uh, to speak up for the disenfranchised, to help people who needed it, and to reach out to everyone to join together and work together
2: for a better tomorrow. This
0: episode kills fascists, the life and legacy of Woody Guthrie Guthrie with Dina McLeod, premiering May 7th on the Road to Now.
2: There was a big high
3: wall there tried to stop me Sign-
4: Folks, I'm David Goldstein. I am Brian Brinkman,
2: and
5: I'm Ryan
4: Nichols. You are tuned into episodes 33 and eventually 34 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself, and tonight Ryan, use the music of Fish as a means to introduce the listener to uh, other bands, mostly non-jam bands that we think that you will enjoy. Because we love fish, we are fish fans, but sometimes the problem with fish fans is that they don't feel like doing a podcast about fish at all, and they just want to talk about you two for three hours. And guess what? That's what we're going to do this evening.
0: Absolutely. We've been talking about this episode for a number of months now. As you guys might remember, back in the fall, we did a full chronological deep dive on uh, the band Wilco. We loved that uh, that uh, episode, and we wanted to do something again with a bigger band that uh, we all love, that we think doesn't get enough respect in this world, that we think uh, is uh, uh, criticized in unfair ways, even by Fish, perhaps. Um, but a band that we all love, and a band that we think uh, you guys will all love if you kind of look at them with the perspective that we're going to talk about here today. So we're going to go through each U2 album, we're going to talk a bit about them, we're going to feature underrated gems from each of the albums, songs that we think might have missed, uh, missed kind of the general public, and give you guys a chance to really hear about the overall chronological uh, evolution of U2, where they are right now, the highs and lows of their career. We think that this is going to be something that you guys are going to really enjoy.
4: And the reason we wanted to have our friend Ryan Nichols on the podcast, some of you uh, may know him. He's actually a very big fish fan, in addition to being a huge U2 fan. And probably, despite only being 23 years old, one of the single most knowledgeable people about music that I know. The kid is really uncanny and encyclopedic, and we wanted to have him on this podcast to talk about U2, knowing that he's uh, got some incredible fish knowledge as well. And some of uh, the themes that we're going to outline in this episode include becoming the biggest band on Earth, the chameleon moment, and what now? And on that note, let's get to some U2. (laughs) We're going to begin with a brief history of you two. And frankly, why should you listen to this band? I mean, do you like anthemic rock and roll that reaches for the stars and gets them more often than not? Do you like bands that aren't afraid to look completely ridiculous because they fucking mean it, man? And do you like inventive guitar riffage that surely took more than a little inspiration from David Gilmour's big riffs and run like hell? I think we certainly have the band for you
0: absolutely and in addition i think your mileage may vary on other records from u2 but really are you prepared to have us call you an asshole for not liking the joshua tree or actune baby um i really would argue you know this is the last band that could really call themselves the biggest band in the world uh u2 has really been everywhere during their 40 plus year career they've dabbled in nearly every style of popular music And they've spent much of their career defining popular trends and morphing them into their evolving sound. I think it goes without saying they're one of the most important bands of the last 30 to 40 years. Um, For me, they're one of my favorite bands. They were the first band I was really introduced to at a really young age and helped set the tone for me about how I saw music and how I saw bands progressing and what I expected from bands and how I listened and approached them. Uh, But Ryan, why do you think someone should listen to you 2
5: I think U two is probably the biggest stepping stone for, I would say, probably rock music to continue in a at a grander scale over the you know from the eighties on, because you know the seventy at the end of the seventies you had you had so many movements you had punk you had metal you had you know Led Zeppelin you know, the Stones were faltering it was a weird time for rock music and and to have one band kind of just carry the torch you know full speed ahead through the most of the eighties interesting you know that's interesting enough. Yeah, and to 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 lead the fact that they were, you know, carried the title of biggest band in the world from the end of the '80s into the start of the '90s. You know, despite the fact that, you know, grunge was happening and you know Depeche Mode was huge and bands like and The Cure were huge at that time in the early '90s. You know, U two was still like innovative and the biggest thing. And for me, I mean, like like Brian, you touched on just so many so many artists I've grown to love. You know, became such because I knew them because of U2. You know, Brian Eno is probably my favorite artist of all time, and I would never know who it was if it wasn't for the fact that he produced U2's records or the countless numbers of bands that opened for U2 over the years that were great. So, yeah, I think, I think they're just a very big, you know, not only are they that influential, but, you know, the music is also great in itself. So, most certainly.
0: I think one thing you touched on that's really interesting and it will kind of lead to, kind of the latter part of these podcasts or these episodes um, is, you know, they really took that torch from a lot of bands in the seventies and brought it into the eighties and brought the large themes of rock and roll into the nineties as well. And one of the things I continue to find so interesting about you two, and again, we'll talk about this in a little bit more depth later, but is the fact that they like a lot of rock and roll musicians don't totally know what to do with rock past 1990 and or past the 1990s and their whole career over the last 20 years has been this endless struggle for who are we now what do we mean and where do we go forward and i feel like you see that in the larger rock and roll um genre as a whole um and i think it's just like this uh this conflict that they face that the genre itself faces that is just really interesting to see play out in real time
4: with U2, it almost seems like for the past 20 years, they're like Enron in the sense that they're considered to be too big to fail. <laughs> and yet, they kind of sort of do anyway. It's like they take epic weights between records because if the album fails, <clears throat> like the record label has to lay off like 30, 40 people. Like there's a lot of people are dependent on U2 being successful. They have an inability to get out of their own way, which we're going to talk about in much more. Uh, much greater depth later but if you two could get over the hump of the bigness and importance self-importance that is being you two then they could probably finally find a way to put out a really good record after 1993 which i'm not sure they have that's all uh stuff that we are certainly going to touch upon in this episode and the next episode
0: absolutely and kind of taking a big step back so just talking briefly about the significance of this band's sound um, I think it's worth noting, you know, U2 has their origins as a post-punk new wave quartet. And when they started in the mid-1970s, they were playing clubs, they weren't getting noticed by a lot of people, and they were kind of competing, competing with um, bands in England and bands in New York that were kind of playing along this club circuit. And there really wasn't a sign in their earliest stages that they were going to be Anything greater than just a club band. Um, But they quickly moved beyond these roots in the early 1980s, and they really (laughs) defined themselves in their interest in global politics, uh, the oppressed minorities, and this sort of spiritual longing for connection and a greater greater level of existence. Um, They became more than a band, and their sound really not only reflected pop culture but helped to define it, which led them to becoming for about a decade, I would argue from 84 to 93, the most important band on the planet, and they really use that period in time really interestingly rather than building and building and building upon a singular sound, kind of continuously breaking down and rebuilding their sound multiple times over.
4: Yeah, I think we would argue that they stretched their sound as far as it could go, with 1993's Zuropa, and they attempted one more bout of experimentation with the early 1997 album Pop before they sort of turned backwards and inwards for the next 20 years. And each album since Pop has been a reductive, somewhat nostalgic attempt to recreate the endemic magic of the '84-'93 peak. Though, as we'll explain, there's uh, definitely some good reasons to dig into that latter period, but. You know, like we've been saying in the last 20 years, we might say that U2's assembled something of a lost dog. They're caught of sort of wandering through uh, reductive albums that have celebrated their past, celebrate them shaking up their past. They're singing about their childhood. They're sort of trying to keep things personal. And in doing so, they've sort of created some substandard records that uh, have proven the strength of their peak work while annoying fans and non-fans alike We'll also showing to have uh, some unique gems upon closer listening. And uh, I can't wait to get to talk about the last three albums, which to me were sort of focus group to death. But we've <laughs> got a ways right. to go before we get there.
0: All right, so we're going to start our chronological deep dive here into U2. We're going to start with Boy. This first episode is going to encompass Boy through Zeropa in 1993. So we hope that you guys enjoy this. Shake, shake. Alright, so segment one in our chronological discography journey through U2's career is Boy, an album which came out in 1980, and an album that shares a lot of similarities with its following record, October. In many ways, these sound like side A and side B of early U2. There's so many similarities to these records in terms of their song structure, the themes of youthful nostalgia, Christianity, and of course, harmonics from The Edge um but this album really sets the foundation for U2 this is the kind of album that I personally feel like any band that has higher aspirations would want to put out as their initial record I don't think it's their best album but I think that it sets a lot of themes a lot of tones for what's going to come and I can't really imagine U2 starting without a record like Boy it sets so much of the idea of who the band is going forward um this record was produced by Steve Lillywhite, and he initially came in, really messed with the band's approach. He had Larry drum in a stairwell. He had a unique effects throughout the record. And the band themselves found themselves loving this approach. They loved how open-minded and creative he was with them, and this was something that stuck with them throughout their entire career. And so already initially you hear this band kind of toying with and screwing with their song structures and how to record their albums from a very, very early age, something which really set the tone going forward. Um, What are your guys' thoughts on this record?
4: Certainly when I think of boy, it makes sense that that's what it's called because there's a lot of boyish naivete on this record. Everything is fast, everything is loud. I mean, it's kind of like Bono sings the whole album with eyes as wide as saucers. It's got some, the fact, I mean, the Edge's riffing is very, very fully formed from day one. Like, some of the stuff, really, he had established, it's incredible how he established his sound early on. Like, certainly, on this record, in October, they have a lot in common, a lot in common with, like, a British post-punk band, like Echo and the Bunnymen. I think even more so on October than on Boy. But what really comes through is a serious, serious go-for-it attitude, and um i think if there's one drawback i think a lot of the songs are somewhat interchangeable especially side b they kind of all tend to run together but uh in addition to the um, the single of course i will follow that's a great anthem there's electrico it's also one of uh their best early ballads the song and Cot dub which i think means the block cot, as bono would introduce early on that's uh that song still holds up today i think they brought it back on their tour in 2005 and people were freaking out it's not my favorite u2 record but it's uh it's a blast of energy and establishes that these guys are for real i think they very early on they did a great job of setting a mood
5: with their music i mean that for for a band that you know a a debut album is always a confusing time for a lot of bands you know they some bands just get it right you know they'll they'll nail their debut album in an screw around the rest of their career but you two i think did a good job of like showing okay we can write a song like the ocean or we can write a song like um uncut dub and really set like this tone this like darkness just you know there's a sinister like background to this innocence it's kind of like lord of the flies in a way if Mm. you think of it that way because the last song shadows and tall trees is of course it's named after a chapter in lord of the flies and it's huh. like while lord of flies is not like the best book or anything like that you know there's this a similar theme of like innocence and like you know in the shadow boy meets man as a lyric from twilight says but it's like the fact that these songs have held up over time like the fact that they can play electrico as you know 50 year old men and it it doesn't sound the least bit you know immature or anything like that i think it says a lot about how this record has stood up over time
0: i think so. two of those songs on this record that um I've always found, I mean, they're two really foundational songs for you two, and um, are two of my favorites. Kind of from a in their earliest period, are "Out of Control" and "Stories for Boys," which I know were early singles for the band. Those really showcase kind of their post-punk and kind of new wave um, leanings in that early period in their career. But I think from a middle part of the record, that just sets like a really great pivot towards the end of the album. Um, and the drums that come in on stories for boys are like one of my favorite things that Larry's ever really done. Um, I would say out of the first three albums that they put out, which you could kind of put boy October and war into a bit of a trilogy um, in terms of like intentional growth at that point in time while still retaining a very similar sound. I think boy is always going to be my favorite of theirs uh, of those, of those first three records. It, to me, it just sounds like you two with the highest of ambitions, not quite reaching them, but just showcasing everything that they wanted to do over the next 30 to 40 years of their career. And I, I, I love that about it.
5: Definitely. And two two songs that I want to mention from this era that don't often get covered, one of one of which doesn't, the other I have never heard anybody else mention. Um, one is 11 uh, O'Clock TikTok, yeah. which I think, fits right in with songs like on dub and um the ocean maybe where they have that like it has that darkness to it yeah you know i mean the title implies it plus the producer of that single was the same producers who produced joy divisions records martin Hannett, um, which kind Sorry. of like he's like the post-punk torch being passed away um and then the other song i want to mention is another day which really could have been on boy because to me, when you mentioned when you mentioned Out of Control and Stories for Boys, like another day also to me has that like it has that soaring like, you know, Bona's voice just like goes way up in that chorus. And it's like, I don't know, that song always got kind of underloved from their early period. And I think it deserves a mention because it it really reaches for those heights. Like you said, it doesn't quite get there. But the fact that that from that early on, you have a song like that confident. I don't know. Yeah it's a telling sign of where you two would go. Well, it's interesting
0: because when they recorded boy, they only had like 30 or 40 songs written at that point in time. And so like, these are, if you listen to anything pre October, there's such a kind of thematic similarity to a lot of those songs. And there's such confidence in what they were playing and what they were writing at that point in time. And really what kind of defined them in, you know, the, the UK and in Ireland as they were playing live. Um, but it, it had to be a really interesting moment for them to come down to a track list of 11 songs, knowing that they had other songs like another day that were such, um, you know, huge, huge, uh, huge testaments for, to them at that early age.
4: Definitely. Let's play something off of it.
0: I feel like the song that we got to play is Electrico. Um, to me, that's the strongest song towards the back side of the album and, I think that really points the direction of where they were going in October as well as, as we'll talk about here.
2: Yeah. Concur. And
5: like I said, it's, it's, it, Electrico has proven the test of time and, and probably could be played again on this upcoming tour and everybody in the house would go nuts because you know, it's just stood up the test of time that long, which is great. So, the year is 1981. You two have jumped right in from a very long, long tour on Boy and have already begun their work on their second record, October. And October, you two had to completely restart. Bono lost an entire briefcase of lyrics to the record somewhere in Portland, Oregon, I believe.
1: Yeah, maybe? In Portland.
5: Portland, yeah. And so Bono had to rewrite from scratch. The band had the music, so that was good. lyrically he had to really dig in and find themes and this is where a lot of the more spiritual themes come in for you two um those aren't really ironically boy doesn't really have a lot of these You you, you can make the case that something like i will follow or something like that has you know a spiritual undertone to it but october is really where i mean they come out guns blazing singing gloria you know in in latin essentially and it's like okay this band is really you know sold on this you know spiritual route but i i ironically i think this is their best of the, the first three records you know and it's often the most overlooked the first three records and lots of people kind of dog on it because of its spirituality but i think i think it's more interesting than just the typical like christian themes like i i feel like it it really gets into some cool soul searching and like especially the back half you know songs like stranger in a strange land right. or with a shout they get it you know lines like yeah, you know, where do we go from here? I mean, it's 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 so simple, but at the same
4: time, it's like you know, as for a second album, you know, it asks some pretty big questions. I think, in the Spin Alternative Record Guide from 1995, I think it was Ann Powers, did the U2 entry? She gave Boy a six. And War a six, but October got an eight, so she would agree with you. That it was the most interesting of the first three albums. It, it is a really interesting record because to me, I think I think it predates
5: so much of what they would go on to do with um, the Unforgettable Fire and and Joshua Tree, in terms of like just opening up these like big vistas, you know, for their music. Whereas like I think while War is this big anthemic record that we're about to talk about, I think you know October was the first one where they just kind of like opened up. What the possibilities of what, you know?
4: I think it's. See. Yeah. What's uncanny to me is how much the first two albums by U two really mimic the first two records by Echo and the Bunnymen, who yes. um, were basically they were kind of seen as their competition at the time. they were uh, their paths would certainly diverge with albums number three, but this album, October, to me, sounds a lot like the second Bunnymen album, Heaven Up Here, especially uh. The third song, I threw a brick through a window. That's uh, the edge has a full-on Will Sargent riff, and even the vocals—you can imagine Echoes frontman like Ian McCulloch singing some of these songs. And if I have enough to drink, I'll start singing October in like Ian McCulloch style vocals. <laughs> but yeah, those uh, two bands were competitors. They had a lot of the same. Post punk bass lines influenced by new wave. And, um, you know, when we talk about the next U2 album, we'll also talk about how uh, they kind of purposely left Echo and the Bunny Man in the dust. But, you know, at this stage, they were still a young post punk band, albeit one that was clearly destined for bigger things.
0: I think, um, you know, I Threw a brick Through a Window. Was that a single?
4: I don't think so. It was not.
0: Only
5: Fire and Gloria, I think, were singles from October.
0: Okay. For whatever reason I threw a brick through a window was one of the earliest U2 songs I became familiar with and um, you know you've got like the ocean and shadows and tall trees on a uh, boy two songs that like are early experimentations with kind of ambient soundscapes that would lead them to Brian Eno and it, as we'll talk about in a couple of records it's it's always fascinating to me that Brian Eno didn't want to work with you two, um, for, for, uh, initially, even when they were kind of experimenting with that kind of sound, I threw a brick through a window, I think is one of the most fascinating rhythmic songs that the band has ever made. It's so disjointed and it sounds really nothing like where they were going to long-term go with their career. Um, but I, I think on October, it fits really well. And I think it fits kind of to your point, Ryan, um, this is almost like their most nuanced record of their first half of their career. Um, I mean, you could argue aspects of unforgettable fire, but I think unforgettable fire, they'd already reached a point where they knew how big they actually could be. And they were being a little bit more intentional with it. I just think that some of the music written on here, while it's not my favorite of the first three records of theirs, um, I think it's the one that requires the most listening, you know, It it does. It doesn't hit you in the face. Like, the other two
5: albums do in any sort of way. It personally it took me a while to come to a conclusion. That October is my favorite because boy, at uh, the first three because boy for longest time was and then I think I think a big thing and yeah you know, we talked about Steve blue white briefly the boy but I think he deserves a lot of credit with October because he really, you know they were find they were finding their comfort zone with him I think and he was pushing yeah. them to do cooler and newer things with their sound and experiment a song like tomorrow which I mean you know there are touches and stuff like that on. Um, a Boy but I think you know he really helped them dig into a song like that which paved the way for like Drowning Man
4: or you know sort of. Plus Tomorrow name. isn't that one of maybe the only two or three times that Bono has sung about his mother on record? Yeah it's I Will Follow
5: I, there are a couple more than that but I think that one might be the most explicit honestly because I, I Will Follow, Follow
4: tomorrow, tomorrow, MoFo, Lemon, Mofo, Lemmon, Mofo
5: Lemon, and Iris so I think five unless okay. we're missing one. Because you always forget Lemon. Lemon's also about his mom, too. So there's that
4: who died very when he was very, very young.
5: Yes. Which which that is important to note that that really did set such a tone on his life is that he lost his mother at a really young age. And so he was essentially in a boy's family
0: and things like that. So and we'll talk. I mean, when we get to pop, but they opened the Pop Mark tour. Most shows, I, I believe, I know most of the shows, the show I saw on that tour, um, I'm not sure if it was every show, but with MoFo and then I Will Follow coming right after that. and It did open for a sure, show, yeah. It's just such Definitely. a fascinating way for them. I mean, it's a tour where they were mimicking consumption, consumerism in the most, you know, in the biggest way possible um, for him to set the tone of each of those shows about, you know, his thoughts on his mom. And at that point in time, I think he was, I don't even think he was 40 years old at that point. So, you know, you can imagine, you know, the, the scars were still, you know, quite fresh, even though he was, he was, you know, an adult and he was still a young man in, the, in that sense.
4: October is also the first album to establish the time honored U2 tradition of putting the worst song as the last song. On the yeah. album. Yes. I was gonna, I was going <laughs> to note that too. Cause is that all is like
5: the most literal title in U YouTube's entire career. <laughs> like, they recycled the riff from the cry, which was an intro to the electrical for those who don't know. Um, that was not intentional and um you know it's just kind of Bono just yeah he just kind of <laughs> yells is that all over the end and it's like really it's yeah
4: makes me happy
5: yeah and I feel like the record could have closed much stronger um especially like I like how like I touched upon in the beginning I like how kind of soul searchy it gets towards the end like I like with a shout and uh, stranger to strange land a lot and then Scarlet which is like this pretty like pre um unforgettable fire like promenade type interlude piece and then it just fucking ends with is that all it's like really like we could have yeah like a celebration would have been like way out of it you know that would have been hilarious but nonetheless not a fitting closer but it's like i don't know i feel like you two could have done a much stronger job of closing october
4: with a shout that's the one that he calls he just like yells jerusalem over and over right yeah Yeah, that's yeah it's it's yeah where do you go here jerusalem
5: yeah it's an interesting song but it it has a great energy to it And I really like that song a lot And I, I'm i surprised they never like played it I mean, it, it is a bit ridiculous, of course So that's probably why they didn't play it on like, the Unforgettable Fire Tour But I don't know, I figured it'd have a little more life in it
0: so. Well, one song I want to talk about from this era That wasn't put on October But I think is one of their strongest early songs Is the song A Celebration Which was released as a single Around the time that October came out But um, I think it would I think it would have fit on the album, maybe on side one. Um, But this song was performed extensively during the band's first international tours and has not been heard from live since uh, March 30th, 1983. Something I think is a travesty. I think that that song has to be brought back. I would love to hear how you two of this era era plays that song. I think it's just a fascinating riff from the edge. Um, Really poignant lyrics uh, that were quite controversial at the time with uh bono criticizing the cold war um but you know claiming that he believed in the atomic bomb he believed in world war three um i don't know do you guys are you guys familiar with that song do you guys like that song
5: yeah i love that song i i think and Steve lily white is the biggest advocate of that song ever because obviously he produced it and yeah he's pretty proud of that song but the band yeah. seemed to not be um i think Edge's guitar work on that song is great and i think you know it there was a little while there where um the, jumping ahead the vertigo tour they did fast cars as like a loose encore song like kind of you know that's a, another kind of jokey song in their catalog that was also not like an album song and it was like they played that as shows they were having like a lot of fun at mm-hmm. and i feel like a celebration would be like that song to do yeah for that purpose like i could never see it being a regular that'd be great if it was but i couldn't see it like sliding no, like so one
0: off here and there just like a nod to that era yeah their early films. days
5: yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they always stick to "Out of Control" as like that song, which is great. I mean, it's always I always welcome "Out of Control" as that song, but I feel like you know a celebration is definitely a best opportunity.
0: Yeah, I don't know about great, you, Dave. There's a great speech that uh, Bono gives during the Vertigo DVD where he talks about their first shows in Chicago and how little they knew as a band, and kind of introduces this next song they're going to play, and I think it's "Out of Control," but a celebration would have worked perfectly in that setting.
4: Oh, we're gonna play something from this record. What do we got? We're gonna pull up. Um, A song I,
5: fall I fall down. I fall down. Which the song is crucial too because this is the first time you two ever use piano on the on the album. And The Edge, you know, would when they play it live, do both the piano part and the guitar part.
4: Second um, song on the album.
5: Yeah, something he would do quite often from this point forward.
4: 1983, U2's third album was called War. This is the one that has the really stark-looking kid with the huge eyes on the cover, and it says War, and U2 in big red letters. This is when the casual listener started thinking, oh shit, these guys mean it. And to me, I think of this album as being a huge singles record, and certainly the earliest U2 album with the really... The biggest disparity between the singles and the deep album tracks. I mean, this is the one that's got New Year's Day, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, Two Hearts Beat as One. Um, The last song, 40, which I don't know was, I don't think it was a single, but it was always a huge, huge live anthem. I mean, you can turn on any AOR radio station anywhere in the country, listen to it for 20 minutes, and probably hear the piano riff from New Year's Day ring out. Same with Sunday Bloody Sunday and the deep cuts. There's a as will become a theme with you, too. There's definitely it's a bit of a minefield. Um, I think the fourth song, like a song, it gets really dangerously close to self parody. There's a song called The Refugee, which kind of uh, it predicts the baseline to uh, the Escape Club song Wild Wild West by six years. And there's a song called Red Light that's got a trumpet solo. And if the trumpet solo is the most memorable thing about a U2 song, that's problematic. But other than those three tracks, everything else is pretty great.
5: Also, shout out to the intro of Red Light because I think until California in 2015, fourteen or fifteen, like Red Light was definitely the worst intro to a U2 song there was. <laughs> so that that deserves special mention, I think. For me, you know, again, I'm much younger and. So I I didn't see the impact of war and like how big you know the videos for Sunday Bloody Sunday were and how much of a radio you hate New Year's Day was but like to me I've always wondered why is War considered the best of the three early U two albums because I always think it's you know the most inconsistent and and like we just talked about I think you know it has some really ridiculous moments it has it has a lot of moments of brilliance too but it, I've always wondered like why is this like the one people go to like are the singles that big for people which I guess is the answer but.
0: I, don't know. I think that is the answer. I think it. I think even with the self parodies and the kind of songs that definitely fell flat and and should be forgotten, there should not be a uh, a war tour a la Joshua Tree tour. Let's just say that. Oh God! Um, I yes. think that I think that this this album is really like they set this foundation with Boy, um, with October they had this really rushed follow-up experience where they lose the lyrics, they have to rewrite them, they write some really nuanced, kind of weird sort of songs that kind of predate their more experimentation. War is that first album that, I feel like it's the first record a lot of U2 fans became really familiar with, and it really projects towards, um, specifically, the Joshua Tree and All That You Can't Leave Behind, I would say, I think that those kind of three kind of work similarly in like a long-term trilogy just because there's so much bigness on this record. There's so much, um, it's a very clear sounding record and it's really the band just trying, it sounds like to me, to communicate with as many people at the exact same period in time.
4: Definitely. This is also the, this is the record where, the comparisons to Echo and the Bunnymen, they kind of veered in a more populous direction, whereas the third Echo record being Porcupine was um, sort of dark and like prog rocky. And Echo also didn't show much interest in touring the States, which you 2 absolutely <laughs> did. And Echo and the Bunnymen really didn't have much interest in like um, global politics or... Um, you know, like the Irish Revolutionary Army or anything to that effect. Whereas, you know, Bono, even God, before we knew about fish playing Red Rocks, before I grew up and realized that Red Rocks was an incredible concert venue, me being four and five years old, watching TV, seeing Bono march out with a flag and torches, that's what I thought of as like Red Rocks was the place where you two sung Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and just. For the world, look like this crazy, almost like fascistic band because he's yeah. got the, flag the white flags, the yeah. yeah. Thinking, oh, that can kind of blow the mind of a four year old. And, and it's, thank you for my parents letting me watch MTV at that young age. So.
5: <laughs> I would say, funny thing too is that you two, as we begin to talk about their live show at this era and how like it was becoming, it's you know a big a big deal, you know, which I know is what we're gonna lead into. But like it's funny that the band themselves often, you know, what three songs have represented war in their concerts for years to come. Sunday, Buddy Sunday, New Year's Day, and 40. Mm-hmm. You know, they've kind of, those have been the three songs. Like they have not touched aside from a couple of performances of Two Hearts as One, they have like not touched this album at all in since nineteen eighty. Four, right. which is kind of amazing to think about because like you know it's held in such a high regard and yet, and you know so is. Did they play seconds at all
4: after the initial tour? They or?
5: did not. They they played. They said played seconds and surrender on the Unforgettable Fire tour, and then both were okay. quickly dropped. Yeah, and and seconds is a great song. It's a good song, but I feel song like song. I feel like it would be a pretty dated nowadays, which is like the, yeah. the war concern. <laughs> but it it would be fun, especially because Edge sings too. Um, I don't know if Bono could
0: sing Surrender like he did in 1983 at this point. No. That's a big thing too. I am surprised that that didn't show up on like the Zoo TV tour because there's a lot about that song there's like a groove in that song that Adam really drives forward that I think leads to Unforgettable Fire and specifically kind of what they were doing in the early 90s around (laughs) the Zoo Ropa tour. I feel like that would fit really well. Um on that tour, but I'm surprised he never revisited it.
5: No, it would have fit with, like, Daddy's Gonna Pay for Your Crash Car and, like, yeah. this, like, groove worlds. Like, I think that those two songs, like, make a lot of sense together, which is nice.
4: Um, so, I think the song, unless you guys had more to say, what the song we are going to play was Drowning Man, which is uh, atmospheric ballad. Yes, Drowning yeah, I think- Man is where... Sorry, they...
5: I think did a good job of actually experimenting on war because war, war. Despite all of October's experimentation, I think war they just like went balls to the wall, making made this huge anthemic rock album. But drowning man is this gorgeous, gorgeous interlude type song. You know, it's it's a song, not an interlude, but it feels like the reprise from
0: it does. <laughs> it all does. this
5: bigness, the trumpet solos. You know, it's this gorgeous song, and of course the band has never played it live. But hopefully they have a remedy to that this year
4: finally. All right, drowning man comes after like a song which might be the most Bono hits you over the head with my earnestness song in U2's entire catalog, which is saying something. Yes.
0: I think um, if there's anything else to say, I think just with regards to Under a Blood Red Sky, if you haven't seen the documentary or the the concert footage, you can find, um, you can definitely find it online. I was watching part of it last night. Um, It really showcases what the band was, going for from a live concert standpoint and i think you know this being in at its heart a fish podcast we all know the power of live music and we know what it's like to go to a concert where you feel like there's a real connection between band and audience and i think we all know as people who go to a lot of concerts what it's like to go to a concert where you don't feel like there's any sort of connection whatsoever and for everything that you can say negative about you two what they were trying to do from a very young age from a very early part of their career was a complete connection with every single person in the audience. And you see that song after song after song throughout Under a Blood Red Sky. And it just defined who they were going to be going forward as their live show became almost as important, if not in some cases on certain tours, more important than the albums that preceded it.
4: And all the songs in Under a Blood Red Sky, I think, are better than their studio counterparts, especially... The opening song Gloria, which is the first song in October, which uh, careful listeners will note that is indeed where Bono says, This is Red Rocks, this is the Edge, followed by the guitar solo. So, yes. Well, actually, does he say, This is Red Rocks, then the guitar solo, then this is the Edge, or? No, I think he says, This is Red Rocks, this is the Edge, all in one go. And then
5: Edge yeah, brings out the guitar solo right. Gloria. No, certainly which again yeah. just just pointed to their ridiculousness and you know <laughs> like you know the the bombast of, of war air you two it's just I mean it's it's brilliant but it's, you know you, you look back and you like yeah this is totally ridiculous but you know what it's it's, it's great in its own way
0: well as um, we yeah. step from this kind of ridiculous era into a different uh, phase of U2's career let's listen to a little bit of drowning man which is uh, I think one of the strongest songs on war Something that predates the next record and ask you. Take my hand.
2: You know I'll be there if you can. I'll cross the sky for you love.
0: Moving into 1984, we're going to talk about my personal favorite U2 album, uh, a huge transitional record for the band. Pretty much anything that the band did before this point, you kind of they kind of wipe the slate clean with this record. They invite a new producer, Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois, to come in and help them reshape their sound, focus on sonic landscapes, focus on a little bit more of an artistic approach. But more of a serious record, um, and this really, this album uh, drove the path forward for where the band was going to go and where they were going to kind of shift at any sort of moment of uh, conflict or lack of understanding about what to do directionally within their career. The Unforgettable Fire really f- pushed them forward in that sort of sense. Um, so this record came out in 1984. Uh, this is at the time their biggest record. Um, this is a record that really kicks off a rock tradition that if you are a traditional rock band who wants to revolutionize your sound, you either call up Brian Eno, a la Coldplay on Viva La Vida, or you resort to minimalistic ambience like Kid A era Radiohead. Um, (laughs) And it's just a, a rock. Even
4: Levita is a good record, too, which is, it kind is. Of crazy. It's actually, that's the best play record by far.
0: It's a rock and approach that you. I actually, I, I fully support. I, I'm totally down with any band trying this. Um, some may be more successful than others, um, but I, I actually really like this approach a lot. Um, Trey, get Brian Eno on speed dial. You know you want to. <laughs>
4: Fuck Bob yeah. Ezrin. Yeah. Get rid
5: of Bob Ezrin, please. Get rid of Bob Ezrin.
0: Please, please. Um, So while this is the most experimental U2 album to this point, the approach and the songwriting really works as an overall prelude to their biggest albums, Joshua Tree and Octoon Baby, which I think without this album, you don't get those two records at all. Um, What are your guys' thoughts on Unforgettable Fire? It's uh,
4: clearly a transitional album because – they can still do the wiry, post-punk thing like on uh, the song Indian Summer Sky and Wire, but it also has the uh, Brian Eno, Lenoir-style wandering mystic epics that they would perfect on their next record. But certainly songs like uh, Pride, The Name of Love, Sword of Homecoming, um, Bad, My God. that's uh, yeah. Those songs pointed the way forward because they were kind of they'd taken the post thing sort of as far as it really could go at that point. And man, if you, if you want to see me cry, just play a sort of homecoming. That is, uh, one of the better opening tracks on a U2 album and just really paints an incredible atmosphere of coming home and trudging through snow and just the sound. It's, uh, it's capable of bringing grown men to tears, and it does.
5: That song is like the perfect thesis for the whole record, too. Like in the first like
0: totally.
5: five seconds, you know, it kicks yeah. open with that drum beat, you know, and it just opens up into this like massive, like I don't know. I mean, you just see, you feel like you just open up into this like massive world where you're just looking at this huge landscape, and and that song is like it's it's just like unlimited possibility in a way, and it that felt kind of what that record and what that era seemed to do you know when when you two linked up with Eno and lambo i felt like they you know could try anything and if you listen to a lot of the songs from like the sessions from this era like they got pretty experimental like they did shit like boomerang and like you know love comes tumbling and stuff like that and that it could this record could have been a lot weirder than it ended up being you know in some ways like they, they did a great job of editing it down to the atmosphere that they've got on the album i think like no no song really feels out of place like wire yeah it feels like it's a little more propulsive i would say but even still like the intro is, has this like celtic string you know hypnotic effect to it which
0: it, it works really says really. a lot about the band that it's one of their more experimental records and yet it's not really an experimental record like you have yes promenade and you have 4th um, of July and you have Elvis Presley in America songs that are in nature kind of strange to appear in midway through a rock record. But at the end of the day, you know, pride in the name of love bad. These are massive YouTube pillar songs and the band kind of did a great job of fusing who they were at that point in time and who they were trying to become with these kind of sonic landscapes and experimentations through Brian, Eno know, that they were really, uh, really curious about, um, you know, it's interesting to talk about a sort of homecoming. I was just kind of thinking to this. Um, they don't sound anything alike, but I feel like that and Zoo Station share so many similarities in terms of the way that they open the records in that they just kind of knock down the wall of what you thought you 2 was prior to that point in time.
5: Yeah, because you can listen to Where to Shoots No Name and be like, "Oh yeah, that's just, that's the band that did Unforgettable Fire." You know, it's it's not anything right. in Zeropa, which you know is my, we'll get to it later. But my favorite U two song, like it it feels very much like a band that's continuing a long Whereas like, yeah, you're right. A sort of homecoming is like completely different than the or, first. Like, Beautiful records.
0: day sounds like okay. U two's returning to what U two was. U two um, exactly. You don't get that like a sort of homecoming in Zoo Station. Just like knock down any previous preconceptions of the band.
5: Definitely, and what I find interesting, too, we mentioned Bad, and Bad is always, of course, a very interesting song to talk about, um, because it's a lot of people's favorite, or one of their favorites, and it's funny, because on the album, it's actually more, I would argue, a more experimental song, like, it feels really unfinished, like, it's a really, like, weirdly structured song, in a way, yeah, it came into its own on, on stage. Exactly. Sure. Like, as a, it became, in my opinion, what might be their best live song. Like, it, yeah. it never fails to just totally bring the house down. And, like, it, you know, lots of people say Where the Streets and their Name is that song. I've always made the argument that I think bad is, like, you can play bad. And it, it, it's such a simple song, but it does so much.
4: It's a stealth heroin song, right?
5: It is, yes. About doubling its problems.
0: Yeah. Well, I know that right. intentionally, Bono really tried to keep many of the songs sketches from a lyrical standpoint, and I don't know if this is the case. I would potentially throw this out as an arg- as uh, as as an argument that um, this is the the one U two album where uh, there aren't really cringeworthy lyrics scattered throughout. <laughs> uh, I would
4: I, read- <laughs> I you Elvis Presley in America rather than that song. <laughs> I think I think. Elvis Presley in America does a good job of being
5: like impressionistic, I guess.
0: Yeah, I agree. I
5: I really like that song. It's impressionistic, you mean bad. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't, but see, here's the thing, Dave. It doesn't go out of its way to be like cheesy or corny, I guess. Like, it's just kind of, it kind of floats on by in a way. Whereas, like, while I love Zero, and we'll talk about it more later, of course, like, Babyface is undeniably like a corny song, or some days, but others is undeniably a corny song, you know. Or even Octung, maybe you, know, you can make an argument that a lot. Elvis
4: of Presley in America allows Bono to sing about two things he loves a lot, being Elvis yes. Presley in America.
0: Well the strange thing about it is like it's it's very subtle. Like he's he's not it doesn't feel it doesn't like, sound like Elvis. It doesn't like yeah. but it doesn't sound like, like Rattle and Hum era U two where they hit you over the head and said like here's the blues and here's No, the, he's not like not American Elvis Presley worship. Right. He didn't
4: record it in, like, Stack Studios in Memphis and staring at photos of BB King on the wall. This is true.
0: I mean, musically, yeah. the the cool thing about that song is they took just a backing track from A sort of Homecoming and he wrote lyrics and sang over it. Like, that has such a... The, the music of that song has such a similarity to the overall vibe of the record. Um, I, mean, I get it. Like, it's not their best song, but I think it fits that album really well. I think MLK closes that album really well. And... I'm kind of surprised we haven't talked about the title track, which is one of my top five favorite YouTube was, songs of all time.
5: Yeah, I was saving that, actually. because
0: <laughs> that, that song is so like, I've never been able to figure out what's going on with that song. And it always surprises me every single time I hear it. There's always a moment where I just get complete chills listening to that song. its It's so brilliant.
5: Seeing it live on the 360 tour, I, I will like go on the record as saying it was one of the highlights of my life. Like honestly, it, it like that song for me when I when I first heard that when I was younger on the best of eighty through ninety or whatever. Like I remember hearing that. Like I'd heard "Where the Streets in No Name." I'd heard you know all those songs on the radio and stuff like that but it's like the unforgettable fire was like the one I had never heard on the radio, like ever. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. You know? and there's a
0: music video. For, I think there's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is the, there are the multiple, there, there multiple music videos for pride. I know that. Um, yes. My favorite of which is the one where they show like the smokestacks in Dublin. And then they're playing in like an empty room. But
5: um, yeah. The Plains studios, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, unforgettable fire is a very distinctive video. And I think, I think it was actually pretty fitting for the the, the song. Like it,
4: What's kind of interesting to me about that song is that this album came out in 1984 and uh, careful scholars of rock history know that 84 wasn't a particularly good year in terms of, uh, I guess you could say music production. A lot (laughs) of synths, a lot lot of of electronic drums, a lot of Yamaha DX7, this is like. Bobby in the Midnight's, I Want to Live in America, Rush, Grace Under Pressure. This is also
0: and okay, born in ben the USA. In
5: born, yeah, born in, which, USA, ben in 1984. Yeah,
4: one. both great albums are both like produced with fucking synthesizers to death. Yeah, exactly. A, this song, almost. the Unforgettable Fire, for you too, an '80s band that does a really good job of not sounding like an '80s band. This has like the song has the one I think concession to like 1984 production with that. Duh-nuh. Bow. Yeah, very simple mindsy In a way, actually. Yeah, that, I was thinking simple when I heard that. That keyboard, like fake string hit, sounds like '84. Like, yeah, it does. Like lines. It one one thing I really like to note in this. I've always thought about how,
5: like this, you know, I always think that this album is impressionistic. Like that's that is the word I like go to to describe it. Like I always find it interesting that none of the songs, the titles are not in the lyrics. Like I always found that really interesting about this album. Like except for Pride, obviously. Pride is the only one, but every other song in the album, if you think about it, the lyrics are not. In the, the title is not in the lyrics. I really that. That's
0: that's fascinating. I never. Yeah, not
5: that. ACDC record where the title is the course. <laughs> the, the chorus, yeah. It's it's funny because it, it makes me it makes you think of I don't know. This is where the the first album where I think. Bono did a really good job of like putting the listener in charge of what the meaning of the song could be. Cause a lot of, yes, a lot of songs have obvious meanings like pride or, you know, bad with you know the heroin problems in Dublin or MLK, obviously. But like, there are some pretty open-ended songs on this album. The unforgettable fire, I think definitely being one of those. Um, but mm. I, th- I think it's, you know, it, it, it was nice. Like, you know, I, I think sometimes some bands like leave things a little too much a mystery but I think this was a good album for you, two to say, OK, it's up to you guys. You know, it's really it's really where they started. Ironically, it was their biggest album up to date. It's also where they started really trusting in their listener that, OK, there's a lot more to this record.
0: Well, it's interesting because uh, and one thing I do want to note is, um, you know, the band still had these goals set on being a, a massive band and being perhaps the biggest band. And, and as we're going to talk about in the next section, they, they achieved that and then some. Um, And almost the tail end of The Unforgettable Fire, this very kind of odd impressionistic uh, record, turned them into this massive band through their live performances of these songs, particularly the performance of Bad at Live Aid, which, you know, if you've watched it, if you've seen the video for it, it works in the same sort of manner that anything from under a blood red sky does that it showcases this raw power of connectivity that the band had that Bono had and that song more than anything else put them on this trajectory towards where they almost couldn't make any album other than the Joshua tree. Like anything below the Joshua tree would have totally diverted their career and they would not be where they are 30, 33 years later, 34 years later. Um, But I do find there this almost interesting um, what if, that if they had continued making records like Unforgettable Fire, what they would be regarded as nowadays versus what they are.
5: Mm. Exactly. And, And what's funny, too, is like that song, you know, they chose to play bad which was in the single, like they could have just easily gone out and played Sunday, boy, Sunday, New Year's day, I'll follow in pride. Right. But they went out there and pl- they chose to play bad. This like not single, like not hit song that they so, knew it was song just, like, requires you
0: know, a ton of your patience And like, you exactly. To, like listen to the lyrics to actually understand what's happening.
5: Exactly. And they played it on, in this gigantic stadium. They played it in front of millions of people on TV. And, and then, you know, Bonham was like, Oh yeah, let's save this girl. Who's, you know, clearly having the worst time of her life in the front row. And, you know captured the audience in millions and then not even play our biggest hit at the time. I mean that to me said a lot. I don't know. Like I obviously I wasn't alive at the time, but you know reading about it I was just like wow, they really went for it at that point in their career. So
4: what are we playing here? I think we're going to play Indian Summer Sky. Yeah, I think, think
0: thematically it's post-punky the time, like it's it this shows like their roots and this shows kind of like where uh U2 like what you 2 had really attained. I think this is a great Testament to the to the album, um, to the sound of it, the, the, the uh So uh, let's go ahead, let's listen to a little bit of Summer Sky.
4: this, the year is 1987, you're putting in some good hours at the office, burn the minute oil, boss is pretty impressed, he says, son, I like what you're doing, listen, me and the wife are having dinner on Saturday night, and we'd love to see if you could come by, bring your wife, Like, get a babysitter, you don't want to have dinner with your boss, but you know, the boss says you gotta have dinner with them, maybe they'll, maybe it'll be okay. So, you step into your, your boss's apartment and he goes to put on a record. Chances are that record was either Paul Simon's Graceland or you choose the, the Joshua Tree. You know who likes the Joshua Tree? Your mom and dad, your middle school teacher, maybe your aunt, maybe your little sister, and probably everyone is 53, 54 year old boss. I don't think there's anybody in America who can actually, or the world, who says they really don't like the Joshua Tree. And if they do, they're either lying or they're an asshole. But that's okay. <laughs> seldom is an album so universally revered as legendary, and actually is. And that's even still without me having bothered listening to the last two songs on it in like the last 25 years. I, that's an album I, I put on today, and I'm, I'm still floored by it. It's just, there's nothing, it almost seems a little reductive at this point to talk about the greatness of the Joshua Tree, but it really kind of fulfills every promise U2 has made up to that point. That's my favorite U2 album. I still think it's their best album. I think it's the best album from 1987. And this is really where U2 becomes U fucking Two. And if there's any album that a casual listener will know, it's this one.
5: Definitely. It, I think I think it's it sets its tone strongly by, you know, the story goes that Bono just like they were, they were arguing over the track list. And Bono has this, one of my all time favorite quotes is that a band, he says that a band should never break up over, you know, dumb affairs. They should break up over the track list of an album. <laughs> and supposedly, like this was like almost a thing with Joshua Tree, like Brian, Eno hated where the shoots in their no name and wanted to delete it, whatever. You know, they couldn't argue, they kept arguing over the running order. And one day, Bonner just asks somebody, and you know, you can Google it because I forget. Um, but she, he asks, you know, what are your favorite songs in Joshua Tree? You know, p- rank them in order. And the girl just ranks the album as it's listed today. And Bonner just goes, this is it. This is the track list. You know, and so, oh God, you know, it wild. leads off with it, it's crazy. And it, it, it works so well in a way. It, it is one of the only albums where it's like acceptably front loaded, I think. Mm-hmm, like, you mm-hmm. want it to lead with its biggest singles in a way. Um, very accept- few other albums. Yeah. That yeah. is
4: Acceptably Front Loaded
5: acceptably, yeah. f- acceptably Front Loaded Usually you hate when albums leave with all three Of their biggest singles but with the Joshua Tree Something about that just feels really right Like
4: it, it gonna, could be any other way I'm going to start a Joshua Tree tribute band And call it Acceptably Front Loaded <laughs> Acceptably Front Loaded, yes
0: Well and you know To to your point of what you're saying I think that's part of what makes this album So fantastic and and so revered Is you get past those first three or four songs. And the back half of the album is, I mean, Running to Stand Still, Red Hill, Mining Town, One Tree Hill. I mean, these are some of the best deep cut songs on a U2 album. I would personally argue, I will defend Exit. It is one of the rawest, most powerful songs the band has ever written. I think it's one of the the darkest songs that they've ever written. And I... I think Adam shines on that song in ways that he rarely gets a chance to. And Mothers of the Disappeared is like the perfect marriage of U2 and Brian Eno. And I think it's such a... Like, there are other ways I feel like they could have probably ended that album. I feel like Where the Streets of No Name or I Still Have Found What I'm Looking For in an alternate universe works as a really unique album closer. But I love how they decided... To close out their biggest album of their entire career, uh, with this kind of weird, spacey, kind of synthy, really pretty melody uh, of of a you know, ultimately a Brian Eno led song.
5: Definitely. and they call the the last three songs the trilogy of death, I believe, because One Tree Hill is of course about their friend Greg Carroll, who was tragically killed in I think eighty six, and and you know those three songs have always, you know, it's a very heavy ending to yeah. such a such a powerful album you know and, and such a huge yeah. album i mean just think about how many you know it won the grammy for album of the year you know it was number one in how many countries and how many copies it sold i mean just the it and it ends so powerfully like i mean it's hard, it's tough to think of an album that like you know was that popular and has such a heavy ending like that and my argument always is that one trio is my favorite song on that record and, and i think one of their best songs overall. and i know it's a band a song that means a lot to the band you know and for a lot of fans it's kind of like it until the joshua tree tour this past year i mean it, it's so rarely played and it's kind of like a holy grail song for two fans because you know it, it just has you know if it was played as frequently as say bad or where the streets of no name i think it would be regarded as one of their best live songs but right. because it's so rare you know it has that mystique to it but you know edges solo at the end i mean he really stretches out when they play it live and i don't know it it it's really really magnificent mm-hmm. It had a really sappy TV show named after it. It it did, and that, it's it's almost saddening that that's kind of a legacy. You know, I people mentioned <laughs> I like that show, and I'm like, hey, that was named after one of U2's best and <laughs> most tragic songs. You know,
4: and this <laughs> is really the first U2 album where they kind of shed any vestiges of uh, like post-punk. I mean, this is the one where they fully embrace going cinematic. There's photos inside the liner notes of you know the band hanging out by Joshua Tree in like the California desert. And uh, you know, we think that the desert is a true symbol of this record. It's a result of Bono's travels to uh like poverty stricken Africa. I think realizing the poorest are sometimes the happiest.
0: Yeah. Yes. I um so for me, the Joshua Tree is where my U two story begins. This album came out just shy of my second birthday and I don't have like immediate memories of like my parents putting it on that first time, but I, I do know like my childhood. There wasn't a U two album that came out until I was six years old after this. Well, I, uh, Rattle and Hum, yes, but like a proper studio album that they sat down and crafted. And this for me was like this was the record of of my childhood, and I listened to this album in my dad's car. We listened to it while we were barbecuing. I probably put it on in my tape, my uh, my tape player. The, whenever I, you know, whenever I got that, like I listen to this record. I've probably listened to this record more times than any other album in existence um, in my whole life, and for me, this will always be like the defining image of U two. And there's always like pre Joshua Tree and post Joshua Tree for me when I think about this band. But this is, I feel like this is the purest form of U two that there was at any point in their career. Like this is where they fully realized their sound. If I were to make a fish comparison, I would say that this is like December, fall 95 fish in that this is <laughs> this is the yeah. peak of everything they've been working towards at, you know, over the last 10 to 15 years.
4: This is pure uncut, grinded up and snorted at you too, much like fish December 1995. Most certainly. And, and I think another thing about this record is that, you know, it, it,
5: I always joke that New Year's Day is the U2 song that, like, even people who hate U2 can admit they like. But, like, if, if we stretch that out to, like, an album, it's always the Joshua Tree. Like, if, right. like, exactly. there was recently there was some, like, bullshit Vice article where some, some band or the, the AV Club where some band listened to the Joshua Tree for the first time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and they go in okay. with all these, like, extremely millennial, and I know I'm 23 and saying this, but, like, these extremely millennial preconceptions of you 2 and they're like oh wow I actually know most this album and it's like I don't know it, it's <laughs> it's like you know if people actually sat down and listen to this like it it's pretty amazing like and, and like we said you know you listen to barbecues or you listen like your parents would listen to this and it's like it's crazy like it was as popular as it was considering how like it gets really heavy you know running the standstill again it's like the same theme as bad you know it talks about you know the heroin addictions and right. around double or like "Wintry Hill and um yeah, the, the death
4: trilogy, you know, one tree hill, mothers and exit, you know, red I mean, hill mining town. That's the song we're going to play. It's another uh, song to make a grown man cry. No, it's very powerful. Bono's voice, arguably, and and
5: I think this is certainly an argument to make might be that might be the the highest it soars on record
4: um, throughout their highest battle. it soars ever. I yeah, think actually. I think this I think red hill mining town could be Bono's best like, vocal performance on album. I album. was thinking is part the of
0: the reason why they couldn't play it live for right. so long, right?
5: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it, there's a couple of rehearsals from 87, and I don't even think they were recorded, but, like, where they definitely tried it, but it's just, like, it's something that he couldn't commit to every night. And so it was the only song from the record that they did not play on the initial Joshua True tour. Um, but, of course, jumping ahead 30 years, <laughs> you know, finally got played live in a I'll bite, different version, but... Nonetheless, finally made it to the
4: stage. This album is such that um, the songs got used in movies several years after the fact. Like, I don't know how many of you remember the David O. Russell film from 1999, Three Kings. That was uh, the Persian Gulf War epic with George Clooney and Ice Cube and Spike Jones, which uh, very, very late 90s. Movie was okay, but uh, they used the song "In God's Country" to very excellent effect over the closing mm-hmm. credits.
5: In God's Country, in some way, I just, just want to put this on record: is the most shoegaze U2 song in terms of how you know layered edge gets his guitar out yeah. there. I don't know. I've
4: yeah, the, God, the, God, this, the yeah, his solo in the middle is incredible.
5: Yeah, yeah. the solo, the shoegaze, especially like yes. yeah, it, it really you know it predated all those bands and like, it's funny, you know, we'll talk about actually maybe in a minute and how my play balance, actually was a huge like thing. They looked at when they made that album, but you know, it, it's funny to hear, like you can hear like galaxy 500, you know, like kind of covering in God's country. Not that, you know, they're what well, makes that's a whole other podcast, but you know, they could be dream poppy or whatever, but you know, this, the guitar sound is there. Like it has that like infinite guitar. I think that was the term Edge used at that point in their career, but
4: I'm guessing if you're listening to uh, this podcast at this point, you probably heard the Joshua Trees. So We're not going to be labor the point too much more, but let's listen to Red Hill Mining Town. Where if you like this version on, um, like some kind of super deluxe recent Joshua Tree reissue, there's a different mix of the song that has a horn section that I think was actually in the original mix of the song, but buried very, very low. So that brings the horn section to the front and it's kind of like an interesting twist. I much prefer well, the one that they went with. But. Yes.
5: One last note on, on the Joshua tree too, is that this is where they started to kind of argue with, you know, Lenoir a bit more and Steve Lillie white, you know, who they worked with for the first three albums and we're kind of like, Oh, we want to do something else. They brought him in to kind of be the pinch hitter. Like he kind of wrapped up the album for them. You know, I did, I've done some reading on this and I think it's in the documentary and it's so it's curious because he did that remix of Red Hill Mining Town. So it's like, oh, this might have been what it would have been like if they had totally gone with his version. Which it's good that it didn't. I agree. I like the album version much more. But
4: you had uh, you had just recently uh, talked about the band Galaxy Five Hundred Yes. Galaxy Five Hundred slash Luna frontman Dean Warhams uh, his his. Um, Sorry, his book, Black Postcards, I would absolutely recommend to anybody who likes rock memoirs, because I think it's one of the best rock memoirs. I think there's a point where he says, um, like, the record label really wants to bring in Steve Lillywhite to produce a Luna record. And then he says, you know, the Joshua Tree was produced by Steve Lillywhite and Brian Eno and, and Daniel Lanois. It's a good record, but then you could probably put a whole bunch of monkeys in a room with Eno, Lenoir, and Lily White and then make it pretty fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> a pretty
1: good
4: fuck. Yeah. Anyhow, let's listen to Regal Mining Town. The scene
2: is split. The cold face cracks. The lines are...
0: Alright, so you just put out the biggest album of your career. An album that sold 25 million copies. What in the fuck do you do now? Well, if you're a band like you 2 you make a rock documentary about yourself trying to become a massive American band. Getting in touch with American roots like you never have before. You get a little bit too self-serious. You make a record that has been perhaps a bit unfairly maligned, a bit uh, crossing the lines into self parody, but also a record that I would defend as probably better than you remember and one of the more interesting records that U2 has ever put out. Um, this is a bloated album, it's, I think, 17 or 18 tracks. Within the record, there are live performances there are covers of the Beatles and Bob Dylan there are tributes to John Lennon there are songs written with Bob Dylan there are songs written with BB King there are songs written for Billy Holiday there there's no there's no sense of like irony or humor in this album whatsoever for you 2 which is something that would become a huge theme for them over the next over the course of the next few albums but there's, there's a lot there's a of unintentional humor a lot yes. of unintentional a lot humor of, <laughs> And this is really the album that if you hate U2 and if you have no understanding why we decided to dedicate not one but two podcasts to U2, this album is really the origins of that for a lot of people. Uh, Though for me, I I find this one of their most fascinating records. I think the songwriting on it is really interesting. And it serves as this kind of cap to the first third of their career that without it – you don't get Octune, baby. What do you guys think about this record?
4: Um. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I would agree it's unfairly maligned. I mean, most of the stuff that sucks is the live songs. Like, there's a version of uh, their cover of "All on the Watchtower" makes the Dave Matthews Band version of the song look we'll like the Jimi Hendrix version of the song.
0: Totally disagree. Um, I like, okay, I like that version a lot.
4: Uh, I still haven't found it. Looking, uh, still haven't found what I'm looking for. Shouldn't have been supplemented with a gospel choir. Yeah, just use the crowd that you're in front of you for that. Right, thing. right. I agree with that. And then, um, of course, when Bono opens the album with a cover of The Beatles' "Helter Skelter" by saying, "Charles Manson stole this from the Beatles. We're stealing it back." I really would have liked to have seen Fish do that speech before they played Helter Skelter.
1: (laughs) Um,
4: Yeah, there's a a lot of silly stuff. Plus, but um, the studio songs are actually pretty good. And I think a lot of the studio cuts get lost in the live ridiculousness and the blatant hero worship. Like when U2 goes to Memphis to record a song with B.B. King and um, certainly Angel of Harlem was a big single, not one of my... Favorite U2 singles, but um, the studio cuts, the deep cuts, uh, like Heartland is actually a very excellent song. Adam's favorite U2 song, too. Yeah. More really? Noted. Yeah. Oh, he, the, Adam I mean, mentioned, uh, He
5: mentioned that in the uh, You talk to 2 To Me uh, interview. He said Heartland was one of his favorite U2 songs. Which is good Because I wish so he. Well. Exactly. And I wish he would advocate for them to play it live,
4: but alas, it's not. <laughs> you and, too. um, Era. This is also uh, the album that has "All I Want Is You," aka that really boring song from the Reality Bites soundtrack. <laughs> totally
0: just and, with that as well. I yes. fucking love that. Is a beautiful I song, love that man. Song.
4: Yeah, it is oh. just bad part two, less bad.
0: Oh my yeah. god, I love that song so much. I think it's one of the I,
5: sweetest songs Bono's ever written. See, for me, ironically, you know, I I tend to subconsciously like I try not to. Do this, but usually singles from a YouTube album are not my favorite songs. Okay, like I, I, it's always it's always been that way. The Unforgettable Fire is an exception, and certainly on this album, my two favorite songs are are probably the two biggest singles, which are Desire and All I Want Is You. Which I mean, you can make the case Angel harlem is bigger, but I don't know. You could Desire and Angel of Harlem are kind of interchangeable in terms of YouTube yeah, stature. Yeah, Desire is a, a great song. Desire is a great, a legitimately it's great. Big Bo Diddley beat. Bo did, yeah, I was say that we were talking about the influences, you know, Bob Dylan or Billy Holiday, but but Bo Diddley, you know, was definitely the one for desire. And I think that song might arguably do the Bo Diddley beat better than almost any other song in a way. You know, it's up there. You know, it's one of the best Bo Diddley songs, or right. Bo Diddley beat songs. Um, but just like this in your face, like it, without desire. I think, I think desire and God Part Two, I think are the two biggest like. Precursors to what they would do at Oxygene Baby, um, you know we we say that you know YouTube looked at their ridiculousness of this era and said, okay, this is what we are not going to do going forward. But I think they totally looked at Desire and God Part Two and were like, okay, this is what we should be exploring. You know, this is the mentality we need to go in and 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 kind of carried this out on Zoo TV with the Mirror Man persona where they played Desire and I don't know. There's interesting themes. Underlying desire too. Like it's not just, you know, this like love song or whatever, you know, it's not
4: just about the fever getting higher. Yeah. Desire. Exactly. I I think there's
5: more like the way they did the Hollywood remix of it and I don't know the way it was probably the
4: on CTV. closest like, they've had to an A C D C song and the fact that the title is the chorus. The title is very much the chorus. And, and they the rhyme fever getting higher with desire. which. <laughs> That if you if you think of that too, the desire is totally the
5: precursor to elevation, which is, a,
0: I think somewhat. That that's, that's a really good point. that's that's very much what they were touching when they were or they were touching back to when they when they were at the always, elevation. I think for sure. Um, but, but
4: I think a lot of what people don't like about Rattle and Hum can be summed up uh, in the live version of the song Silver and Gold, where yes. Bono does a monologue about artists against America. apartheid. South Africa uh, tells the Edge to play the blues and the Edge does not play the blues. He plays like a vaguely shoegazy guitar solo.
5: It's like literally the weakest Joshua Tree B-side and that's like the one they like rolled with to put on this record and right. feature to the rest of the world. Where, where is this? They were at Luminous Times or Walk Through the Water all these great songs and they're like oh silver and
4: fucking gold is the one. Uh, I have okay. a question for you guys because I don't know the answer. Um, sure. The second song that the Ed sings, Van Diemen's Land, is that completely the U2 original? Is that like an I- Irish traditional? Or what's the deal I believe with that it's song?
5: It's totally a trad- uh, U2 song, and it's about um, Tez-
1: Tasmania? Yeah, Tasmania.
5: Tasmania. Of- yeah, Alticoast of Australia. So um, so it's, a- it's an interesting song. And, it- and thing to note about Rattle and Hum, and this is- I'd- I've been given a little trivia on each record, and this is one for sure. Rattle and Hum is the most successful U two album in Australia, which doesn't make any sense at all. Huh. <laughs> but for some reason it is, and they have always done a good job whenever they play down in Australia to play to play songs of Rattle and Hum, which is has always made me really curious, you know, That's why really
0: I have no understanding of why that would be. But um
5: Yeah. Because Australia doesn't love America that much. I mean, they're not like obsessed. Like you two is with America on this record, so I don't no, know.
0: No,
4: and there wasn't the Australian leg of the Zoo Two V tour called it was called Zoomerang. It was Zoomerang, yes. Yeah. I'm it's not even Love, joking. I'm
5: serious about yeah, that. Yeah. Love Town was half of it was Australia, New Zealand, and then yeah, Zoomerang. Yeah, but all I want is you is is a really unique song because it's you know, it's a classic typical YouTube out Dave you joke that it is bad. Part two, it kind of is in a way, you know. It's it has a similar build to it, you know. a Very simple but notable guitar part, but you know it climbs into this high, you know, soaring. All I want is you chorus, you know, kind of, you know, like we said, we've said it many times. You two did a great job of being an '80s band, but not sounding like the '80s. You know, it. If you look at how an excess had never tear us apart, and you have which bodies to sample at the end of all I want is you, um, and mm. then you had all I want is you, like. U2's is a lot more, even though it soars higher, it's still more restrained and more subtle than you know the 80s Bombast of Never Terrorist Part, which I love that song. That's one wild my time favorite songs.
4: That's the but best NXS record.
5: It's a very it good is song. Certainly. It's a and that's a great song. But it's just like it's a neat comparison to think about how you two approached like these huge anthemic love songs compared to another band from the 80s, like NXS, who they saw as a contemporary. But my last point about that song is that you know it closes out with this long extended string piece which i know it had, they did that intentionally to close the movie with that mm-hmm.
1: but i think yeah. of it
5: more so as the way of them shutting the door in the 80s you know the 80s towards the end they've built on this whole symphonic sound with you know unforgettable fire and joshua tree and then rattle and hum and it ends with this big you know orchestra strings you know and it that isn't really seen again on a U2 record for a little bit of time. You know, you think about that. It, it's a nice. So maybe Kite, you know,
0: where you hear orchestral music?
5: Yeah. That's what I was, I was trying to think what the next song would be. And I think Kite is indeed the next song. So it's like, it. that's a really fitting end to that decade and closing that chapter for U2 very early, you know, in the first decade of their career.
0: Well, it's interesting because, it, and I think where we got the idea to record this podcast came out of um, when, the most recent U2 album, uh, "Songs of Experience," came out. Uh, Ryan, you were all over Twitter, and you were doing a chronological listen. I think you did it all in one sitting, which I did. To yes. Give you some incredible props for. I've done yes. a chronological listen to U2 many times in my life, and I've never done it in one sitting. So, uh, huge applause to that. Um, but. The crazy thing is, if you listen just based on the albums and you don't go to like B-Sides, you just go what they put out as full albums to go from All I Want is You and the fade out of the strings into Zoo TV is one of the most jarring moments of transition for that entire process. Um, Absolutely. And it's a good transition because like I think I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts. I I think we all have insight into the band's been very open about what was going on towards the end of rattle and hum and that they reached a point where they felt like they built this thing that they couldn't build any higher. They couldn't build any bigger and they had to go back and dream it all up again. I think is what Bono said. Um, yes. you know, I kind of thought about this during unforgettable fire at this segment we talked about in terms of what you two would have been like, had they continued, um, with making records like *Unforgettable Fire*, what do you guys think happens? Or how do you guys think U2 has looked if *Rattle and Hum* is literally the last moment we hear from the band? Do you think that? What do you think our perceptive perception is of U2 at this point in time?
4: I think they kind of would end up being like another band we talked about earlier, like Echo and the Bunnymen, who kind of had their biggest record in 1984 with Ocean Rain, and then they had a record in 1987. Uh, they're self-titled. They had, uh, like, Lips Like Sugar and some other college radio hits, which is to say, you know, um, a very good alternative 80s band, but they needed to push through. And what, as see in Octone
5: Baby, they did. What I think of, if, if and Hum was the end of their career, it would literally be, like, Coda by What's Up one, like, it would just be, like okay here's a bunch of tribute star influences and uh yeah I see little little, yeah, yeah
0: like you don't get that hmm. with led, you don't get like the second period with led zeppelin where they discover a new way to be led zeppelin um but I think exactly that's really interesting. Like, it's because
4: john really, Bon was dead
5: yeah bonzo died and then we were like oh i guess we're not right. anymore. yeah yeah even though, you know, you could hear it in plants solo you're like, oh, this could have been what Led Zeppelin, but their, their fans totally wouldn't hate it. That's the thing. That's what sets you two apart is that their fan base stuck with them through from Rattle and Hum up to through the time talks and maybe whereas like Led Zeppelin's fan base totally would ditch them after <laughs> after that well,
4: had they gone in like a more synthy type way, I guess.
0: Do you guys have anything else to add about Rattle and Hum?
4: I think we should. Yeah. One of the best songs on it. We're going to play right now. Yeah.
5: Talk me. Two hundred and sixty-nine. A song that, if they played this live again, this is one that I can't see that the crowd not going nuts for. Even if they right. didn't know it, it just just has that energy
4: to it. So bring it back, guys, please. If Wikipedia is to be believed, the two hundred and sixty-nine is actually the amount of times the song was mixed.
5: Yes. Yes, and I and think Bob that Dylan
4: just... play that organ intro on it. So definitely. If, if and
5: a special mention, if if you are listening to this podcast and you've made it this far, um, and you're really curious about this music about this incredible music we're talking about and wanting to revisit it on youtube there is an amazing they only played hawk moon eight times i think and there is an amazing version of it opening the show and it i swear to god it's one of their all-time best show openers and they only did it eight times so it's just like you watch it you're just like how <laughs> like they just <laughs> have this sitting around it could easily play like that's just that's youtube for you like they had a million songs that could open the show but like hawk moon definitely could have been one one of the best if they had done it more so Beat 1991. Nirvana has taken over the world. MTV is most watched network. I wasn't even alive yet. <laughs> but nonetheless, U2 comes back bigger and more extreme and in some ways better than ever. Um, you, you have what's known as The Fly, which is this... First s- single. Yeah, first single screeching... Guitar, Kraut Rocky beats, and, and I mean, this persona Bono with huge sunglasses just walking around the streets of whatever city. We'll assume it's Berlin, which is where they recorded most of this record um, in the same studio, Hansa Studio, where David Bowie and Depeche Mode made Rudy records in the 70s and 80s. Um, and of course, they made it with Eno you know, and Lanois again. Um, they went through a lot of hardship and a lot of struggles to finish this record. It's well documented. That the finished product and what they, t- where they, they took it, was the that you know, shift arguably of any rock band at that, that point. The way radio had to do something like OK Computer to Kid A, and for me, you know, as a young, you know, when I was discovering music and I discovered, you know, I'd known U2 pretty well through my parents and things like that. I discovered Oxong Baby as a full record. Whenever you hear the opening is Zoo Station for the first time, it really. Is a mind expander You know if you haven't really delved into music It's it's one that really for me taught me What music could really be Like we talk, talked about with the Sword of Homecoming Like it pushes the idea I think of what a rock band can do
0: I would totally I totally agree with everything you just said And I would add that I don't know if there's a more important record I've ever heard Than this album I think it completely Shaped the way that I listen to music and I think it completely shaped how <clears throat> I was able to accept a, or I was able to follow a band as they went down certain paths. Um, yeah, because I was I was six years old when this record came out, and I remember coming home from school for lunch in first grade, and my mom put this album on. My parents were huge U two fans, and. She was like, "You 2 is totally different. This is a totally different album. It's a totally different sound. And I remember hearing it and liking it, but not having any understanding really at that age in my life of what it meant for like a band to have this like chameleon moment where they completely, they went away and they came back and they were totally different. And that for me has been a huge, huge lasting impact of this record.
4: Yeah. I mean, when this came out, when I was 12 years old, and it was popular way into my 13th year, it was a huge deal for MTV because I mean, YouTube 2 hadn't made a record in three years, and it was the fly was all over MTV. They had a remember a big contest where if you could identify a scene from three different YouTube videos, you could get shipped out to see one of their shows or something. I remember reading the review in Entertainment Weekly. I think it was two big pages and just ended with a simple A saying this is an A record. And when you put on Zoo Station, you hear that riff, the slide riff followed by the distorted drums, and then eventually when the whole thing comes back in, it's one of the bigger statements of purpose of like an opening song in a record I can think of. And then when that segues incredibly and even better than the real thing it's just it's the album you two had to make they pulled it up brilliantly and i think if there's any hope for arcade fire maybe you can say that everything now was their rattling hum. And just yes fucking tear it down <laughs> and come back in two years, and maybe they can make an octone baby. Just maybe. The problem
0: but, is, that I think that uh, they tried to make their octone baby with Reflector, which was like four albums too early. They yeah. had no business to do it at that point in time.
5: Should sort have of kept digging into their sound that they had created in the first records.
0: Right.
4: It's yeah. Point. It's almost between Reflector and everything now, it's almost like they made the rattle and hum twice. Yeah. So they may be a bit too far gone, but there's. There's a hope.
0: Um, it's the interesting thing about Octune Baby and where it falls in U2's uh, catalog is that, like we're describing here, they, they followed this sound uh, kind of as far as they could. They had a few diversions with, like, Unforgettable Fire. Um, Joshua Tree obviously sounds nothing like October or War in a lot of cases, but also sounds like a capstone to those records. But, like they kept building while diverging down like little alleyways and little cul-de-sacs before shape-shifting and before completely changing their their sound and i think that that's part of what makes this record so memorable is you know you have this perception of who you two was and they came back not only as a completely different band but like you said earlier ryan almost as a better band i i, I think that there is definitely an argument to be made that Octune Baby is the strongest U two record. Um, I mean, I think that this and Joshua Tree are kind of on the same level um, in terms of what they did culturally for the band, what their accomplishments were sonically, and with songwriting. Um, this is not my favorite U two album, as we already know, but I think that it's there's there's definitely an argument to be made for it to be their strongest. Their strongest. I,
5: th- I think it's their most focused record. I think I, I think it's yeah. a very clear point to make is that we're going to get into Zeropa in a moment, but I think that record, they kind of let loose and had a little more fun. Whereas maybe you know, for a while they had no idea what they were doing and, you know, couldn't pull it together. You know, once they did, which all it's listeners may know culminated with the song one, um, when they pulled that song together, um, the whole record came together, but once they had that focus and they finished up the album and again, Steve Lillywhite came in towards the end to help mm-hmm. make that happen. Um, you know, it, they were able to clean up the record. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you make the argument that, you know, Joshua Tree has no bad songs or that Unforgettable Upfire has no bad songs. But truly, Octum Baby, none of these songs are bad. Like people, yeah. people, yeah, people yeah, rag I'm on so album. cruel. Yeah, no. people where I got So Cruel or Trying to Throw Your Arms Around the World, but I think those are extremely strong songs. So Cruel is a so, gorgeous song. Yeah, it's an amazing and gorgeous extremely family. heartfelt song, you know, with some, honestly, some of Bonham's best lyrics are on that mm-hmm. song. So I would, I can never discount that song. And Try to Throw Your Arms Around the World, get, I think it's a good, fun song before the last three, like really heavy, kind of like Joshua Tree, you know, gets really heavy at the end. You know, Trip Through Your Wires, which is. A much dumber song i think than try, uh, try and throw and your Ultra arms around oh yeah try and throw your arms around roll. i think it's a, a nice like needed you know morning after the hangover type song
0: i think of a youtube record that flows like, as well as cartoon bass. there
5: isn't mm, i think it does one. a great job even boy it, or not boy wow i think one being the third song and that always for me even when i was younger and didn't know anything about album sequencing like i always thought that was like a neat thing to have that song right but it's really heavy powerful ballads so early in the record you know whereas most bands would say that for last and be like oh yes yeah, the the closer but it's like right. you two have an even more powerful song you know <laughs> love is blindness at the end so it's like you know only you two really could get away with having a song that powerful so early in the record seemingly
4: Yeah, I think with Octung Baby, between the Joshua Tree and Octung, I mean, U2 for me has entered the free pass zone, meaning they can put out some really awful records and awful songs, and that will always give them a free pass, because bands never get to write an album as good as the Joshua Tree in their career, and then U2 went and did it twice. Exactly. So that is why I will always... Listen to any U2 album that comes out at least once, maybe twice. Even though some of them are not so great, I will never not be interested just because they ascended those peaks twice.
0: Well, I think one thing I mean, Which, this, this I, I've got to believe that people know this, but just just has to be mentioned in this section. I mean, the band almost broke up so they they left the the Joshua Tree Tour Rattle and Hum had come out they'd been almost publicly ridiculed for the first time in their career like truly ridiculed around a a massive stage Um, and they couldn't figure out what to do next they knew they needed something completely different and it wasn't until one came together in Berlin that they really got to the point where they could start building this record and they could figure out this new sound for them. And you know, I brought up the Joshua tree in comparison to like December ninety five Fish. Octune Baby is what Fish did in nineteen ninety seven. The the parallels of a band that didn't know what else they could keep doing within a confined sound found a sonic landscape within themselves that nobody ever really thought possible the idea that you two would write a song like the fly or zoo station or even better than the real thing or until the end of the world or even i mean one i feel like has precedent within their career i think it's one of their best songs but i think that you can draw a line between some of their earliest great material the joshua tree one and some of the best stuff that they've written in the last 15 years but for them to be as successful as they were not sounding like themselves is one of the biggest accomplishments the band has ever had and when, until when, the when end
4: when, of the world. That song was, um, that was like the basis of a, the Win Winners movie, right? Until the yes, end of the world, it was.
5: Okay. He, he pretty much wrote an entire movie based on the Genesis of that song, which you know is is a, a retelling of the Jesus and Judas story in a way, but only in a way that Bono could tell it. And right. that that okay. was the thing I was going to mention too is that this this record is especially interesting because this is the last full album look at spirituality, I think that you two did. I mean they only did October and and this album, I think. Because if you know, I think the thirty three and a third like makes this entire argument, but the whole record can be linked to Bono's like grasp with you know spirituality and religion and, and
4: there's some really interesting parallels in there. You know, like one sec. So you're saying that the song until the end of the world is actually the Jesus in like Judah story? Yes. And Bono No it, kidding. Oh my god. A lot of times, oh yeah, times
5: they play it live. Oh. Yeah, a lot of times I play it live on and we'll just yell, you know, Judas, you know, before they start like the intro and stuff like that. So,
4: you know, that makes perfect sense. And yeah, I fucking never thought of that until now. Never thought of it. Yeah, it's it's a crazy way to think
5: of it, you know, Mm in one. (laughs) I mean, Mysterious Ways, I think is pretty clearly, you know, not just the song, a a dance funk song. And, you know, I think I think there's definitely some some underlying tones there, you know, of course, you know acrobat and i don't know there's a lot of really interesting things it it, you know october always gets you know like we said earlier kind of gets shafted for being the spiritual record it's interesting actually Baby like has a lot of these themes they're not out in the open but they are under the surface which is a really interesting
4: thing for again an album of that size to explore give some brief dap to the until the end of the world soundtrack in addition to having that song it also has the Last original recorded Talking head song, Saxon Violins. Sex, violins. It's got uh, an awesome B side from the Out of Time era called Fretless. Um, it's got some other like shoegazy stuff, I think. I forget. That was uh, a very good soundtrack. Certainly. A good movie, too. But I just want to briefly touch upon the song Mysterious Ways, which you mentioned. Yes. It's not U2's best song. Maybe not their deepest song. It's objectively their funkiest song, and it's actually my favorite U2 song. I think for me, that song only rivals the B 52's Rome as a song that can really enhance almost every aspect of your life, no matter what situation that you play it in. And it's uh, one of U2 doesn't exactly jam live. Like it's a pretty, the live show is fantastic, but. Because of uh, the stage show and production, doesn't have much in the way of improv. But um, generally, when they play "Mysterious Ways" live, it comes uh, tacked down with this like slide guitar jam at the end of it, where the edge just does this very wild, fused slide guitar riff that kind of sounds like he's like strangling a cat, but good. Yes. And uh, usually, over the years, sometimes like I think during the Zoo TV tour, Bonner brought up. A like belly dancer, at one and point Ed he brought up that dancer. Yeah. that's right. Yeah, that, that is right. I think at one point he had his twelve year old, then twelve year old daughter come and dance to him. I think on the most recent tour, uh, he would just pull up random people from the audience to dance with him. But it's um they got rid of the slide guitar jam for a while, but they brought it back. And I've always been waiting for them to put out like an official live album. That has that slide guitar jam. but They have not I mean, YouTube. There's a lot of live DVDs. There's like 800 different clips on YouTube of them playing Mysterious Ways. But unless I'm mistaken, I mean, have they put out like an an official live record? Only Underbook?
5: two fan club only releases, which are Hostile of to of the Baby for the Pop Mart tour, and okay. I believe they did the Zoo TV Sydney show as a fan club release. And both of those do have Mysterious Ways. But yeah, those. That shouldn't count. (laughs) Right. They need to have like a. You can go to the
4: store and buy a live album. Like yeah, if you ever want to hear the edge, make good use of a wah wah pedal. Listen to live versions of Mysterious Ways, and and it feels way more powerful as a song when I play it live
5: too, because it it has this like really end of the show feeling. And on Pop Mart, it was usually the second to last song, and it led right into one. And on Zoo TV, you know, it was early in the show and led into one, but it's just like you know. You just have like this massive, like ending, in mysterious ways of like joy and you know the slide solo and everything, and it leads into one, which is it, it works, you know, both tours it worked really well, I thought.
4: When I saw the Elevation tour at Madison Square Garden in two thousand one, was actually the fourth song on the set, which I yeah. thought was awesome. No, it,
5: it works early, it works late. I mean, it, they do they do a good job of putting it around the set. It it it, it it's a reliable setlist staple, I'll say. Yeah. But.
0: So, with regards to a song for Octune Baby, we debated about what we were going to play for a long time, and I think we all re- we all came to the decision. It just made sense to start with the origins of this this record, or the or the, the way the album starts, which is Zoo Station. If if you haven't heard this song, and if you're vaguely familiar with U two, this will completely shock you. If you have heard this song, if you have heard if you are familiar with U 2s catalog which if you've made it this far in the podcast, I would assume you are. <laughs> but yes. this is kind of a, this is this massive pivot for the band from this point forward. They're either not going to sound like the U2 that you know, or they're going to chase the sound of the U2 that you know. And this is kind of that, like this is that breaking point. This is one of my favorite U2 songs ever. And uh, we're going to go ahead. We're going to listen to it right now. <laughs>
5: now the second time they've released an album as big as the joshua tree so what did i do next rem at the time released out of time and automatically people Their two biggest albums to date and they refused to tour you two said fuck that and they went on the biggest tour probably of all time at that point known as zoo tv it was the biggest spectacle that anybody had built up to that point you know Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and all these bands have tried to build these huge shows but nothing came close to zoo TV and the way that it took over football stadiums around the world you know with towering TV towers and Travis hanging you know hanging from the ceilings and you know all you know if it was if it was thought it was done you know and it, it was a mockery of consumerism and television and, and MTV and and where everything was going and somehow it was the most ahead of its time and still is the most relevant to this day but amongst all that you two were having so much fun on this tour that they were hanging out with their buddies brian you know and flood and they were like we should make some more music because why you know strike the iron while it's hot you know why not why not go out there and have even more fun than, than you're already having on this great tour so at first Ed just gets the idea, okay, let's make an EP. We'll have a couple songs, you know, we're working on a couple stuff that's left over from Octung Baby. And, you know, we'll see what happens. But then they're flying home every night from the European tour in the middle of the tour, and they're just like, We have some great material here, and they keep cranking out, and they keep cranking out. They even called their buddy Johnny Cash to provide some some vocals for the last song. And it's it turns out you two crafted what I think is actually their best record. You know, because while Octung Baby is, in my opinion, a perfect record I think I, I, there's not a single flaw I can point to on that album I think that they went even further on Zeroppa by perfecting the formula and they just had they went out there and they had fun you know Octone Baby has its moments of you know it it really is serious and really goes off and you know it's like I said they really were focused on how to point but Zeroppa I think is them you know they're, they are the biggest band in the world and they're having the time of their lives being so
0: I think it's really fascinating when you just look at the amount of time that comes between most U2 records that, um, you know, obviously Boy October War come out in essentially successive years and then Unforgettable Fire comes out in 84. Um, And then you start to have these gaps, three years until Joshua Tree, Rattle and Hum, but, you know, Rattle and Hum's kind of a tour to compendium whilst you know still having some new songs like it can almost be an ep with some live tracks you've got this four-year gap until Octune baby and then since zuropa you've got these four or five-year periods in time between each record and it's this huge build-up and zuropa is kind of this one period one album in the middle of their career where they said we're on such a high we're making such good music let's just make another album and to your point, like there's a looseness to this record that you don't necessarily get with Octune Baby. They're having a lot of fun in a way that you don't necessarily hear them having on certain recent albums. Um, all that said, this is an album I had a really hard time with for a long time. This came out, I was like eight years old. And... I initially did not like this album. I thought you 2 had gotten too, way too weird. I thought the video for Lemon was it kind of freaked me out as a kid. Um and I <laughs> kind of wrote this record so off much. for an extended period of like late childhood into like my early 20s. And it was sometime in college when I got this record or put it on again and I heard it in a totally new way and I don't know well, I definitely wouldn't call this their best record, personally. I it's not my favorite record. Um, I think it's their most underrated album that they've ever made. It is so much more than just a compendium to Octune Baby. It's so much more than just leftover kind of new, weird sounds. It is a very well-flowing album, some incredible songwriting, and the first four tracks on it, I mean, I guess you could make an argument either way for Babyface. It, it is pretty cheesy, but the first four tracks, like, are some of the strongest songs that they've come out the gates with, uh, especially Zuropa and Numb, I I would say.
4: I mean, I think Zuropa is the last great U2 album. I think it's the last U2 album where they were the trendsetters as opposed to trying to chase trends. And the title track is incredible. I mean, that's probably one of my top five favorite U2 songs, the first song. But what's neat about Zuropa is that It has, obviously, it has singles. I know "Nome" was the first single, Stay Far Away So Close is a single, Lemon. But even, it almost seems like every song to me feels like a deep cut, because there's just songs that they either didn't play or songs that you just never think about. Like, no one ever thinks about the first time or some days are better than others or daddy's gonna pay for your crashed car. All great songs, but just... Not in the YouTube pantheon, but still very good and very underrated. Like the album feels kind of mysterious in that sense. And also, it's one of the few times I can think of where a band said, We're excited, we've got a lot of material, let's put out an album right away. And they actually did it. I mean, in fact, you two themselves are probably the most guilty of saying holy shit we've got all this material let's put out another album right away and then it takes four years for it to come out <laughs> definitely talk about that down the road that seems to happen like quite a bit quite a lot too. with you too definitely and for me
5: movies, yeah and a neat thing about this record is I'm, I'm always fascinated about like the early 90s in europe especially because you know it was yeah, totally. the new unified Europe. and i mean this album is the like the beginning of that you know the 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 cover, I mean, straight up is, like, the European Union flag, and, like, they were so into the idea of exploring what is Europe at the time, and it, what I love about this record is that, you know, you two spent so much of the late 80s sucking America's dick, like, this was their one record where they were, like, this is Europe, <laughs> you know, like, right. you're, yeah. you're gonna embrace <laughs> being European, and, and, like, you know, Bono could talk a huge game about on the intersex experience tour about how, you know, Europe and, you know, the refugees crisis, and that's awesome and all that he does that, but it's, like, U2 doesn't embrace being European like they do on this record. Like they, their German influences, you know, they had the Eastern Europe, you know, sounds like at the beginning of Daddy's Gonna Pay. I mean, literally, Daddy's gonna play pays an entire song about you know Russia, you know, the new Russia and the European Union. I mean, just just thinking about the ways that they worked these themes into these songs is just it is completely brilliant. I mean, that's you know from a context standpoint, there's so much undertone to this record. Like, yeah, you can just listen to that. going to pay. And it's like, ironically, this is a song that's relevant nowadays. You, know, you, you look at like Instagram culture and what, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know,
1: mm-hmm.
5: kids are dealing with nowadays. But at the same, at the time that was totally a song about Russia or like how you know, dirty day, you know, can always be relevant, you know, it, you know, I'm, Sorry, Roll as the bad guy that walked on it, out on it. I mean, that's always one of my favorite Bono lines for sure.
4: Well, yeah. actually, Dirty Day is entirely comprised of. Uh, it's all like a Charles Bukowski poem. Yeah, no, it is. Definitely. I mean, all the lines in Dirty Day are all taken from Bukowski poems. I think they're dedicated to him. And the, the kicker, the days run away like horses over the hills. That's the name of a Bukowski like um, compilation of poems. Yeah, sure. so most. A lot of people in college and myself go through their Charles Bukowski phase. <laughs> and maybe Bono's came a bit late.
0: You could definitely make the argument um, this is some of the Edge's best guitar work in terms of treating his guitar and, and working his guitar so it doesn't necessarily sound like a guitar. Um, I mean, the opening riff on Zuropa is one of my favorite things that he's ever played. Uh, mm. Numb is some of the most interesting guitar work that he's ever done um the guitar somewhere.
4: solo to to uh some days are better than others yeah super slept on song super yeah. slept
5: on song i mean that that song i am amazed that ut never attended some days better than others because a lot of people in the fan base see it as like a throwaway song but it's such a simple like really it's a really effective and fun song it feels like and it's, it's like, like, like yeah the Banner bass really still, cool. like
0: sing nowadays
5: Exactly. Like I, I've always, I've always advocated for that being a song that they could, you know, they never, they never played it, and it's just like just play on the little east stage in the middle of the Innocence right. of the Experience show. Right. It's like, you know, the crowd would have fun with it. I mean, it's it's no less, you know, enjoyable than I guess the sweetest thing. Like it doesn't have the big sing along wordless chorus, but you know, I think it would be a lot of fun for I mean, I think you know, any audience. Is,
0: stay far away, so close is one of their stronger songs, but um, yes, for that to be the only song that lasts in the live show from Zuropa is something of a travesty. I feel like uh, some days could like very easily fill that slot every other night or every couple yeah. of nights. All
5: right. Well, the biggest thing, they brought back the title, which I was going to get to. The title track is my favorite U2 song, and I, both of you mentioned it. But it, to me, it's everything that U2 has always been kept. Like I don't know. It, there are so many things about that song that is all I look for in music. The intro, you know, just the a weird sense of walking around a big huge city at like four in the morning and just seeing all the advertisements and things like that you know and and then the release at the end you know dream out loud I don't know you spent a lot
0: of time in Asia that song sounds to me like Japan at like four o'clock in the morning
5: no it does and there are these great pictures and and you can google this like at the very end of the Zoo TV tour the last show was played in Japan which I always think is the most fitting thing like they ended the tour in Japan and and there are these great pictures of them just walking around the streets of like Sh- Shinjuku at like four in the morning. And you're like, yeah, this is them. This this should have been the video for Zeropa if there was ever a video <laughs> for Zeropa. Like, I mean, that, that's that's definitely what I think of. But, but it's funny, like this, my, probably my second favorite U2 song is Stay. And, and it's amazing that two of their absolute strongest songs, you know, are just a couple tracks apart, you know. And those tracks in the middle, Numb, a song way ahead of its time. Lemon, a song that, you know, when you really dig into, you know, insane falsetto this and the disco bass line like that's a really cool song like i mean it's a i mean is there a U2 way song you know, a song that, that,
0: like almost softer. like predated where indie rock and pop itself was gonna go like some 15 20 years later like numb to me or excuse me lemon sounds like a song that like yeah. if that came out today that is like the type of song DFA that energizes you too
5: yeah yeah exactly like that that song is just, like incredibly ahead of its time and at the time I i a reception very lots of people liked it and lots of people didn't like it but it it's one that i think you know people should relook really at again and be like wow that actually that song was a lot cooler than we thought it was at the time like i don't know it, it really says a lot but stay i just think i i think personally stays it, it does what one does but it, it takes it even further for me you know just the imagery of the lyrics and just you know the video has always been so perfect to me and yeah, I'm i know wings of desire is one of my all-time that's favorite like a win-win distribute yeah exactly like right. it, it they you know he took until the underworld so they took you know stay or you know they gave him stay essentially and it's like the, wings of desire is one of my all-time favorite movies and i always think of you know that song and how you know it's written it can be written from angel's perspective and just the way you know, that's looked at i don't know it's it's a really powerful song and and Bono is often called his favorite U2 song and it's like, I don't know, they don't play it as often as they should. It's another one. It's just like,
4: it's baffling. Like,
5: do you really love that song, Bono? Like, I don't know.
4: <laughs> one Europa song yeah. I like Probably. a lot is um, the third to last song, The Ballad, The First Time. Yes, Which to me is very Lou Reed and like the Velvet Underground style like Junkie Ballad. Like, I, I, I could, think they they got that from covering Satellite of Love fall tour. They were just like, we got
5: to do our own Satellite of Love, and it's yeah. kind of what the first time is. Or, but, but to me, it sounds more like I found a reason, probably for mm-hmm. lady, you know. Okay, one yeah, one of our best Actually, you know, it, it's this really like searchy song, you know, and then you know it picks up towards the end where you know you really find, you know, for the first time you feel
4: loved or something like that. So, and then, of course, on the last song, The Wanderer, which has Johnny Cash, lead vocals. This was uh, this was before Rick Rubin found him. So yes. it's hard to believe, but there was a time in the 80s and especially the early 90s that Johnny Cash was not cool and didn't sell a lot of records and might have fallen in hard times. So uh, but certainly his his vocal contributions to the last song on the record, The Wanderer, it's almost, it's a little goofy, but I think it also contains, I mean, he didn't write the lyrics, like I think uh, Bono still wrote the lyrics for him, correct? Okay. Yes. Right.
0: It's interesting to think going forward, like I, I'm i trying to think of uh, the, the album closers for their last two records, I'm, I'm blanking on them right now, but aside from Cedars of Lebanon off of no line on the horizon, which we'll get to. I uh, I don't know of a quality album closer since Love Is Blindness, like The Wanderer. Nope. Um, I think it's actually a really good no. They're all terrible. The That's the one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they my they really interpretation didn't know of the wa- how, to, how to close a lot of albums out for a long time.
5: Yeah, i always seen it like it literally. Johnny Cash is just you know, it's like. Okay, they used to close every Zoo TV show. Or not every, but it seemed like every. You know, they would play Love is Blindness. You know, Edge would have that blistering solo. And, it, you know, Bono is in the costume. Either the mirror man or Mr. McFisto. You know, and it's, you know, falling off or whatever. You know, these things can't help falling in love by Elvis. And I always think of, you know, that as a way, you know, Bono sees that. I was like, okay, uh, Elvis created this bomb know, Because Bono is always obsessed with Elvis. You know, and he walks into this world. And then for me... I always see the wander as you know Johnny Cash is you know the old head you know this guy just r- walking into the world that Zoo TV has become you know he's from the fifties you know sixties or whatever and he walks into Zoo TV and is just like holy shit you know what's what's this all about <laughs> this is what the future is. you know and and, I, and I've always I've admired that you know I you know because oh, Bono there's a version out there Bono singing the wander and it's it's beautiful of course you know he does a great job but. Johnny Cash just makes so much sense.
4: When U2 brought him on board, he was uh, he was very out of fashion, you could say. One thing to mention about the Wanderer too, before we wrap up Zappa, um, a
5: neat thing about yeah, you know, we talk about Zappa being UT's last great record, and it was kind of like a ending to that part of their career. But you know, Johnny Cash several times in that on that song, you know, he sings about being in search of experience which is funny because you know you two just really songs of experience and this whole like later part of their career that's kind of what they've been looking for and so the wanderer is kind of like where they stopped i guess you know they they wrote that song and it's just like have they been searching for it i don't know you know it,
0: well i think it's it gonna be interesting to get like... into our next episode here and talking about you know the final um you know five or six records that they've put out since over the last 20 years and there is been this kind of wandering nature to what they've been doing that I think as will prove is has been quite has been a lot more interesting it has been perceived in kind of the big public spotlight but yeah it's I never really thought about that song in that sort of fashion I don't think I'll ever hear it the same way again now that you brought that up it's kind of like and as I'm thinking about as I hear the song in my head that like kind of waltzing bassline that Adam has in it, it just kind of mm-hmm. feels like the closing credits of a movie to a certain degree.
5: It it does. Like it's really that chapter of their career where they're just like, I mean, they bring in Johnny Cash to sing it, and they're just like, yeah, and bye. I mean, this is it for now, you know. And, and it's funny. It was the it was the intermission song. I forgot. I totally forgot. I just remembered it while you we were talking. It was the intermission song for the Innocence Experience tour, like the first part of it. Hmm. So you know that it, it is pretty curious how they've actually kind of played around with that song for, that, for their career like that's been the thesis of the rest of their career has been yeah you know, we talk about how a sort of homecoming will be the thesis for the rest of the 80s or how yeah um, Zoo station is a thesis for like the the their first two records in the 90s but the wander ironically being despite being the last one in Zeropa, is kind of what they've been looking for the entire rest of their career Honestly, when you really think about it um, and how, you know, it feels like the world has ended on that song and <laughs> you just, so you have nothing like left, except the left
0: there. He found like a, a melody to sing over as, as the world, you know, falls apart around him. Um, Ex- exactly. <laughs> um, so kind of as a, as a bridge here, before we close things out, um, just to talk briefly about kind of, What happened after Zoropa, before we got into pop, which will be the first record that we talk about on our next episode? Um, What are your guys' kind of thoughts about what U2 was doing in 1994, 1995, as they were kind of starting to experiment a little bit further and move towards what would ultimately become pop?
4: Well, in 1995, they had the great single Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, which I think was originally written for Zeropa, but shelved, and then it wound up on um, the Batman Forever soundtrack. Mm -hmm. Right? Of all places. Right, and it's um, way before you had Beyond the Pond to tell you uh, what to listen to, you had 1990s blockbuster soundtracks. This was um, (laughs) a Batman movie which had in addition to this U2 song, the album had a it was a PJ Harvey B side. It had a Michael Hutchins covering Iggy Pop's "The Passenger." There was a Nick Cave song. There was a song from the second Sunny Day Real Estate album. All on this stupid Batman Forever soundtrack. And Kiss from a Rose, is, is fun. Oh uh, yeah, of course, Kiss from a Rose. Kiss for Rose, yeah, right. I think <laughs> most of the songs weren't even in the movie. I don't know. In I don't know how like the second Sunday day Estate album has anything to do with uh, Batman, but yeah, anyway. The U two song within is a uh, most excellent pop song. That's that's a fantastic and song. We had we had to correct ourselves. You know, we talked about
5: how orchestration was not heard between All I Want Is You and Kite. But oh we right, forgot, right, right, Me, right, Kill Me is very symphonic. Nellie Hooper, the ultimate like trip hop producer. I you know, worked with Madonna. I worked with, you know, New York and Massive all those people. Massive Attack. Yeah, Massive Attack. I mean, he, he really nailed. Talk show host. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, talk show host. I mean, he he really nailed that song for you too. And it's like, it's like, really, we should they should have worked with him more because they probably could have yielded some pretty great results. But yeah, hold me through Kiss me kill me. I think it's an absolute just barnstormer of a song. I mean, you hear that, and that's a song you can play for people who who don't know shit about you too, and don't just be like. This is you two, really? You know, lyrically, it's one of Bono's best. I mean, just the energy of that song is just incredible, and it, it's like it's kind of crazy. that It was just on a soundtrack, but it was a huge hit, you know. I think and it was think such a huge hit. It was uh,
0: PopMart tour as well, and it was really
5: well. PopMart and three hundred and sixty. It was the encore. Um, I I want I have a lot to say about Passengers. I, I'll keep it short though. Passengers okay. is a phenomenal record. Actually, deep down, it's it, it is yes, wildly unfocused, and you know just. It is like a big soundtrack collection but if you approach it like an eno record like say apollo or something like that it does a good job being a really good mood piece and there are three songs like explicit songs not soundtrack pieces that i think stand up with any of you two's best they are mysterievo which is the biggest hit from passengers. Right. it was a hit in europe i think in the uk especially it was on the best stuff um i think that one is the one that most people will know from that record Your Blue Room which is a huge band favorite great song really great song creates creates an atmosphere that you know late night atmosphere really would fit in that Zoo TV type world it's a beautiful song Um, and then Slug which is not often mentioned but Slug is a a gorgeous gorgeous like that's that's a very Eno inflected song for those that don't know Passengers was like a complete co-creation with Eno so his touch is all over that record and it shows on all three of those songs pretty
4: greatly. So. And on that note, the song that we're going to listen to off of Zeropa is Dirty Day, which can best be described as industrial rock, back when that was a thing. Very so, nice. That's very, really very Nine Inch Nails, 90s term. So let's listen to that. Riding
2: me down. That's not the way it to be. You can't even remember What I'm trying to forget It was a dirty day Explanations. I don't even understand. If you need someone to play, throw a rock in the air, you'll hit someone guilty. For
0: all right. Thank you all for hanging out with us here through part one of our chronological deep dive through the career of U2. Just a quick overview of the songs that we played here uh, off of uh, the album Boy. We played The Electrico off of October. We played I Fall Down. From War, we played Drowny Man. Indian Summer Sky was the selection off of The Unforgettable Fire. When we moved into The Joshua Tree, we played The uh, deep Cut, Red Hill, Mining Town. Off of Rattlin' Hum, Hawkmoon 269. The only appropriate song to introduce, Octune Baby, with Zoo Station. And then we closed out part one of our deep dive with Dirty Day off of U2's uh, eighth album, Zoo Ropa.
4: So, on that note, as you know with Beyond the Pond, you can find us on uh, social media at at underscore Beyond the Pond, one word. We're going to put all these songs up in um, on Spotify in the Beyond the Pond podcast Spotify mix. wanted to also give some thanks to our special guest, Ryan Nichols, who's on Twitter, at, at R-Y-A-N-N-I-C-H-O-L-S-7. In addition to knowing lots about you too, Ryan is a extremely knowledgeable, very nice guy, and it's one of the reasons I'm glad I got into Twitter several years ago was an ability to meet him and just really pick his brain about all types of music. Also, very huge Fish fan. Very thankful I've gotten to know the two of you on
5: Twitter over the over the last few years. Dave, we met in person. Brian, I'm sure we'll definitely meet in person. Um, you know, we share a lot of the same bands, and while we may not always agree on various bands and their best works. You know, there's always a great discussion with you two and it's a great dialogue and always hope to continue that for sure.
0: So I'm really thankful that, uh, I met, uh, Luke Maskell, who was an intern with a company that I used to work with who introduced me to you, Ryan. I, I believe that that's, that's where our initial introduction came from.
5: That is crazy. I, I actually didn't even know that. That's, that's awesome. is <laughs> a great, he was a great friend of my high school. Yeah, I figured you just met me through Dave. That's crazy that you actually met me through Blake instead. <laughs> I didn't. I literally did not know that until now. So that's really cool. We've all learned something um, uh, on
0: this episode. We awesome.
4: have <laughs> definitely. So any good
5: discussion
3: has that. So okay.
4: on that note, I would say come back next week when we are going to uh, start with the U two album Pop from 1997 and explore what could say uh Somewhat more troubled waters of uh, U2's adventures in the late 1990s in the oats going forward. So, on that note, I am David Goldstein,
0: I'm Brian Brinkman,
4: and I'm Brian Nichols. So, come back in a week, we'll join hands and say kumbaya, and then we will go beyond the pond.
3: really talk and sons turn their fathers in. I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit. They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want